Wednesday night edition of the pod, and we have a series after the Houston Rockets do what they needed to, although they did it uh, with perhaps a little easier road than we might have expected. 127-105, beating Golden State. And I know you had a lot of thoughts uh, on this game as someone who's watched the Warriors about as intently as anyone this season. Uh, So uh, just give you the floor here to start off with uh, what your takeaways from this game were. This was pretty close to a template of what Houston can do in order to win this series. And it was closer to what I expected from game one. And so there were a couple of big areas that I thought they did really well. One, Houston did a beautiful job attacking, but not necessarily attacking for that player to take the shot. And that was forcing help and getting cleaner looks for support players who did a great job of hitting those shots. On the same kind of idea, they were doing a much better job getting out to the Warriors support players like Clay who can shoot, and then shrinking the floor is a term you've used that I really like on everybody else. One of the big swing parts of this game was Chris Paul on two separate occasions playing Draymond Green, even though he caught the ball in the paint as a passer rather than as a shooter and short-circuiting possessions and getting transition looks the other way. It really was all about the Rockets' defense to me, and certainly they can take a, a lot of pride in the fact that Ariza and Tucker and Eric Gordon were so much better in this game but to me it was about and obviously this is a a big game for your feedback loops as well but Clay Thompson only four three-point attempts after 15 in game one he finished three for 11 and had to get to those 11 field goal attempts he had to take some pretty bad shots too uh they actually made the Warriors into an isotina and D'Antoni ever the humorist quipped that he turned they turned the Warriors into a ISO walk it up team which was the big criticism of the Rockets in in game one but that was the mainstream criticism for us it was all about the fact that they didn't defend Golden State and they gave up way too many easy buckets way too many system buckets and in this game their communication was much better and we've seen basically going back a long time but particularly in this playoffs that there's a learning curve against the Warriors. We've seen basically every team they've played, all three series, has just been pathetic defensively in game one with miscommunications and screw-ups. And so Houston was able to eliminate that. The Warriors just did not get the open threes. They did not get the easy buckets. And I thought that was huge. And then the other thing that you mentioned, not guarding Iguodala, not guarding Draymond Green when Sean Livingston was in, they shrunk the floor off of him. And they were making the Warriors' main guys, Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, try to beat them and beat them where help was more available than it had been in the past. And while the Warriors are a talented shooting team, that shooting talent is very narrowly concentrated. And one of the reminders in this game is that they don't really have many other options to space the floor because at center, you know, their best option for shooting it a little bit is David West. He probably should not play in the competitive portion of the series, he got abused. We'll talk about that probably a little later. And Nick Young is abysmal defensively. He actually hilariously ended up with the second best defensive rating of any of the Warriors guys who played competitive minutes, but that was because of garbage time. But he is just a train wreck pretty much every single time. And something Houston did in this one that they did not do in game one is that they actually hunted him a little bit on switches. They didn't usually have to because they could just, wherever Nick Young was, they would go over that. But then they started getting Harden on him. Harden cooked him a couple times. And while Young did have, I think it was two possessions where he did a pretty good job, generally speaking, he, like Gerald Green, but probably more extreme, gives away more on the defensive end than he adds on the offensive Well, the other thing for Young, too, is he just reduces the overall intensity of the team. And really, as an off-ball defender, he's pretty bad. And then on offense, he doesn't know where to go. You know, he, he's you always just have to tell him what to do, basically. And so he just, he, he takes away from how locked in this team is. But, you know, you can't blame this loss on Nick Young. I think, oh, yeah, of course not. certainly, you know, Young... West, D'Antoni basically went with a, a seven-man rotation. He played Green in and Bob Mute a little bit. Uh, but, you know, Kerr is a, might have to start doing that too. But with Steph Curry, it really seems like Kerr doesn't trust his conditioning yet. You know, he's not he's not willing to play Steph Curry 40 minutes quite yet. Maybe later in the series he would be willing to consider that. Uh, but really, it, it was uh, for the Warriors, they set the tone early with seven first-quarter turnovers, five of them by... Kevin Durant he had all five of his turnovers in the first 
Draymond Green had four turnovers as well. They were, and a lot of those passes, while the Rockets' pressure was a little bit better, were just kind of bad, you know, Warriors messing around decisions. But I do think that Houston really took them out of what they wanted to do. I mean, and this is the second time these playoffs that they've really been shut down on offense. Uh, and New Orleans did it to him in game three. Houston was desperate in this game. Obviously, they brought a lot of intensity. But this is not, to me, the same Warriors offense that it had been. And whether that's because Mond are, are you know, not really looking to shoot the ball that much or, or to finish around the rim, for that matter, whether it's because Steph Curry clearly has not been the same guy. His three-pointer just doesn't look right like he which is odd because i didn't feel that way in the pell series and maybe that's this calf injury maybe he's had a little bit of a setback he's looked fine driving to the rim overall but the three-pointer he just hasn't appeared to be on balance with that beautiful quick release maybe he'll play better at oracle he's been much better at oracle in these playoffs so far but uh without curry and really killing it kevin durant is the only warrior who had a good offensive game in this game and the problem with durant is that well, you know, he did have 38 points and was very efficient. Once again, he doesn't really like get anyone else involved. He had zero assists. He has one assist in these series, in this series, despite uh, putting up 75 points. So he's really looking to score himself. They're not really helping on him. They're almost kind of doing the same. Or if they are helping on him, it's off of guys who are kind of hanging out in the dunker spot and aren't able to make him pay. So, uh, you know, this Rockets defense, I was really disappointed with their defense in game one. And it's good to see that they're able to bring, at least for one game, the defense that they brought for most of the season. Right. And the reason why I was so high on Houston overall, but especially in their potential matchup against the Warriors, is that they bring a unique combination of a real high upside offense with a capable and at certain moments very high functioning as they were in this game defense. And Cleveland has had that in spurts over the LeBron years, but it's been pretty inconsistent. And I think Houston's personnel defensively is is better than Cleveland's has been. I mean, Tristan Thompson was huge in the 2016 finals and so really saw that put together and a couple of a couple of stats on what you were talking about with Curry that I th- I think are a little bit illuminating. He has played in two games at Oracle now and then four on the road because of coming back from the injury. The two games at Oracle, he shot 50% from three in both those, five of 10 and three, six in the other. And in the games on the road, he is, I think, at about 30% now combined. I don't have the full number, but it's significantly below that. And now he's at one out of 13 in this series. And you brought up the, the minute total. Curry has only played more than 35 minutes once in those six games. And that was in the closeout against New Orleans. And the reason that happened was because they started blowing the lead. They didn't want to play him more than that. It was just that all of a sudden New Orleans started getting closer, started getting a little bit tight and they had to keep him in the game. So I don't think that he's there. And I'm sure one of the things that I'm sometimes happy about with doing the Twitter NBA show is that I, I don't get caught up in kind of the fever swamp that Twitter can be sometimes during a big game. And I'm sure there were some people that were killing Clint Capella oh, the Warriors are attacking him, and they were more successful on Clint Capella. But a point that should be remembered is that of those drives that Curry had, first of all, they required a lot of skill on the drive itself, but the finishes he was making were incredibly challenging. And Curry is a skilled finisher. He can do that over a solid contest. But if I'm going to be a betting man, I'm going to say that making hard finishes over capable defenders is not going to be a sustainable offense moving forward, even though Curry has done it pretty well in the first two games. Yeah, I, I don't. I agree with you there. I, it looked pretty good. It didn't look good in the first game, but well, I, I guess he was going past hard in the first game. But then, yeah, and this one against Capel. But they really need his gravity to start freaking out Houston and causing these miscommunications. I think that Curry's off-ball movement has not been nearly as effective uh we have not seen much of that from him at all yeah that I, I wrote about that i wrote about that in the report cards for the athletic is that curry and this is a parallel to 2016 the possession by possession attention that and panic is a good word for it that you used that he draws has not really been there and curry did something in game two that is more often a, a clay thompson trait which is he tried to shoot himself into a hot streak because his early threes, they, you know, the, some of them were in and out, they were cleaner looks, and he started getting a little bit more aggressive, and they didn't look right, he was forcing it a little bit, and 
just like Clay Thompson, that generally doesn't work. Curry has at moments in the past been able to pull that out because he's the best shooter of all time, but it is still a harder path to success, especially when you don't start off in a rhythm, which he certainly did not as a jump shooter. Lots more to get to here. Uh, I want to talk more about uh, the way that Houston was able to attack the Warriors defense. But first, uh, this from Stamps.com, a service that you uh, have used quite a bit in the last year or so. Yeah, a lot in the last yeah eight months or so because writing a book is challenging for a lot of things. Definitely not the hardest part is dealing with the hard copies, but it was something different because I never wrote for a newspaper. I never had to do that whole, oh, look, I'm in the paper and send it to my family and all that kind of thing. But with a book, that's the way you, that's the way you're going to handle it, especially if people want signed copies. And that meant I needed a solution that also fit my own timing and that maximized my financial obligations, but also time is, is incredibly important. And so stamps.com ended up solving all of those problems because you can do so much from printing labels to scheduling pickups from the convenience of your own home, and you're not paying for that convenience because stamps.com is a cheaper alternative as well so danny sold it pretty well there you don't have to lease an expensive postage meter there's no long-term commitments they send you a digital scale which automatically calculates exact postage for you like danny you too can enjoy the stamps.com service with their special offer that includes a four-week trial plus that postage and a digital scale go to stamps.com kick kick whoa that's not good. Click on the microphone. You do not want to kick your computer screen. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in that familiar code CATSPACE, which we will be discussing quite a bit with the Milwaukee Bucks offseason preview coming up here. Once again, stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in that CATSPACE code and get that four-week trial. Can I start this with a quote? Because I think this will set Absolutely. the table for where I think you want to go. PJ Tucker, after the game, said... We're the underdogs, and we've got to keep that mentality this whole series. That nastiness, that's the only way we're going to have a shot to win. We definitely have to play harder than them. We've got to play harder, and we've got to play smarter. And they did all of those things. Yeah, and and we thought certainly that the Warriors played a lot harder than Houston. We killed Houston's transition defense. And now when you're getting stopped, it's a lot easier to run, to be sure. But the Warriors, I thought, were getting out-hustled especially in transition, their communication, their connectivity was not there. And this is a subjective measure of transition from synergy. But in the first half, Houston had 14 possessions in transition and the Warriors had six. Usually that is the exact opposite with these two teams. And and Houston was criticized for playing too slowly. I thought not only did they attack after Warriors misses, which was huge, but They also just got into their actions more quickly. I mean, when you're trying to do this ISO stuff, you're trying to get the, I mean, they want to run a regular pick and roll, obviously, but the the Warriors are switching that. I thought that the Warriors were a little bit too easy to switch in this game when they didn't need to, but James Harden was starting a lot of his attacks. Chris Paul was starting a lot of his attacks. Eric Gordon with, you know, 14 on the shot clock instead of eight on the shot clock. And that just gives you so much more time to get into the lane start those drive and kicks actions, put the Warriors in rotations. Their rotations were not good in this game. And the shot chart really reflected that. It was A lot of it was transition, but Houston just took an enormous amount of corner threes. P.J. Tucker was five of six on three-pointers. And of course, you got to make those shots too, but he made those from the corner. He All of his three-point attempts were from the corner. He's not a good three-point shooter above the break, but Houston got up 12 three-point attempts from the corner and they made eight of them 12 is just an astronomical number that is like well beyond what the worst team in the league gives up and then you know tucker is a good shooter from there he took six of their 12 corner threes and then houston also got to the rim for 35 attempts which would be a league leading number of shots at the rim and so you, corner threes and shots at the rim like that they also outshot the warriors at the free throw line and that made up for the warriors i thought actually when they really got into the half court defense I thought like they guarded Harden really well. Steph Curry did a pretty decent job uh, on James Harden. Uh, the Those step back threes above the break for Harden and Paul weren't really falling. They're only eight out of 30 on above the break threes. Uh, and, and everyone who wasn't Eric Gordon really didn't have the touch. Gordon was awesome. He was six of nine for three and he had some crazy step backs, including one that basically iced the game. Gordon is substantially shorter than Kevin Durant, but seems similarly impervious to a good shot contest. And that's incredible for him. And I mean, there were plays, Clay Thompson had a nice contest. Durant had one. I think Kevon Looney had one as well. And he, he can just take that shot. He has 
full confidence in it. And some of these were the Eric Gordon, you know, three to four feet beyond the three point line. But a lot of them were actually at the, you know, at the three point line above the break. And he did a really nice job. Also got Durant super pissed on a pump fake. Durant jumped into him, got the foul call. You and I disagreed a little bit with the way that was called. But Gordon did a nice job of getting the Warriors off their rhythm. I I joked that PJ Tucker's shot chart looks like Orion's belt because that's just three <laughs> clusters pretty much and that's that's basically ideal you know I, I, people talk about the Mori ball idea but hey if you could do that it's even even better than just any three corner threes have a higher percentage and yeah the Rockets got to the line through five more times overall but I think it was even a larger disparity during the competitive portion but I did not feel that this game was particularly unfairly adjudicated. It's just that the Rockets were more of the aggressors and were rewarded for it. One element that I thought was really intriguing about this game, and I don't necessarily like it, but I did find it interesting, is that the refs were pretty distinctly not calling fouls on reaches a lot. And that actually, and you wouldn't think it, but it actually benefits Curry and Harden a lot because they reach a lot when they're beaten. And both of those guys could have been in much bigger foul trouble if they had, if referees had called that the way they normally do. And even though that hurts them as offensive players, it's more important to have them on the floor. And Curry in particular, I mean, once he got his first foul, he committed like three other fouls that weren't called, which could have totally disheveled this game earlier than it ended up happening. Now, Houston did shoot really well on their open threes. I mean, for Gordon Gordon and Tucker combining for uh, 11 out of 15 from downtown, and some of Gordon's looks were tough. None of Tucker's were. Uh, and Tucker overall, 8 of 9. He had 22 points. I think that was a, it might have even been a career high. Definitely a playoff career high. Gordon had 27. Harden really struggled. He was 9 of 24, 3 of 15 from 3. Missed a lot of tough step backs. Only got to the foul line six times, which is way below his norm. I thought that early in the game, he was not looking good defensively, but he came out. He had a, a series of pretty decent stops. It got a, a key steal as well, reaching in off of Clay Thompson, of all people. Uh, and I thought that the Warriors definitely did not do a great job of finding Thompson on spot-ups when they were driving. I think the Warriors were a little bit tunnel vision to score. Uh, but Harden was better defensively in this game, and he still got his ankles broken once uh, by KD. Uh you know, he's not going to be good, but he at least tried in this game. It wasn't as bad as it was in game one. And we didn't see the off-ball foibles that he had either. Houston switching. I mean, yeah, I would be, you know, there are a few plays where, especially out of timeouts, where Kerr loves to dial up plays that take advantage of the switch and have guys slip to the rim. But the Warriors didn't do much of that outside of those ATO plays. And so, especially in terms of dealing with Thompson, the Rockets did a lot better. Another adjustment for the Rockets was no centers other than Clint Capella. They just played P.J. Tucker at center the entire time, other than Capella. Capella, 31 minutes. Uh, didn't really get anything going on offense in this game, but and but he at least uh, was solid defending shooters, even if his one-on-one prowess wasn't there as much. And Capella didn't have the scoring numbers, but you oh, see yeah. his impact offensively by what it does to Draymond Green. Because Draymond Green will not help off Clint Capella until the last possible second. And generally speaking, if it's Harden or Paul on the drive, the last possible second is too late because he knows that those two guys in particular are so good at getting the pass to Capella. It could be a lob, it could be a bounce pass, wherever it needs to go. And also, Draymond has to spend a lot of time keeping Clint Capella off the defensive glass. So that does, or sorry, off the offensive glass. That does a couple of different things for Houston that are really positive. One is, you know, it, it takes Draymond Green into a different part of the floor. The second is it slows down the Warriors in transition because Draymond in particular can't really turn and run. He has to kind of deal with that and, and grapple. And he's also getting, I think, getting a little bit tired. It's a lot of work to, to battle Clint Capella. So I think that's an underappreciated part of what is slowing down the Warriors in transition. And it's something that Oklahoma City has done really well the last couple of years. And I'm, I'm impressed that Houston's going at it. I think it's actually the target for teams moving forward as the best way to offensive rebound. That and opportunistic run-ins from other guys like P.J. Tucker is very good at that So what well. can the Warriors do differently from a strategic standpoint here going forward? A couple different kind of large-scale things. I, I touched on these in my writing after the game. One, they need to excise David West from the rotation that he is not the reason they lost this game but he cannot play if the Rockets are are going to avoid playing centers at yeah, any time he other looked than bad Capella's in, that, in that second quarter they just they mean, went he, after him whether it was switching yeah. and then they kept yeah, him in once once they went back to having both Paul and Harden together 
with about you know 10 minutes remaining in the second like yeah it did not look good and i think kerr might feel like hey this is david west he's the leader i gotta play him but you know looney only played 11 minutes and i didn't think looney was like some awesome player in in this game uh although it was clear that the rockets tried to target steph curry more defensively than looney this game i think maybe just in part because even if it's six and one half dozen the other between curry and looney attacking them defensively that you might as well just tire out steph curry more so you might as well just go at him every time instead uh and the prospect of getting him in foul trouble which is very valuable it didn't end up really rearing its head in this game but then that ties in with the second thing which kerr needs to be open to trying jordan bell because looney did not get attacked in switches as much but it showed that he's not particularly good at that. I mean, Chris Paul blew by him a couple times. Paul has such great craft, and Looney wasn't really able to to keep Chris Paul away from his right hand. But even if he got Chris to go to his left, didn't matter. Chris Paul's can can dribble around Kevon Looney without too much of an issue. And Jordan Bell might not be the answer, but at least it's it gives them a well, shot. Let, let, let me and then the other to that too, element, and this is that one. Um, sure. Yeah, Looney also really sucks on offense. You know, like that's a, a, a big problem. Like he just can't really shoot. But he's not like a great like alley-oop finisher or finisher around the rim either. He'll get an offensive rebound every now and then. He is a good rebounder. But I think Bell, as a passer, as a guy who can get up and get some alley-oops, uh, I think he could be more useful offensively as well. And as a transition guy, Bell running the floor, although Kerr certainly has complained that Bell doesn't run the floor hard enough. But Bell is a transition guy. Uh, and it's a guy who could just, you know, be a help defender, block some shots, add some athleticism, add some energy, you know, but, but, you know, I, I understand maybe if they say, Hey, you know what, Jordan Pelly hasn't played all playoffs, but to me, you always had Looney in your back pocket with just playing solidly. You know, he, he's going to be, you know, just like slightly below average out there, but to not like give Bell a chance and just see what you have in him, whether he can just push these guys even to another level with the, some energy plays. Uh, you know, I, I think that that was foolish that they should have given him more of a chance late in the season. But all right, so what were you going to say after that? Well, I'll, I'll follow on one thing there. There's been a theory out there that Bell would bite too much on Houston's pump fakes. And that certainly is true, but you can coach a guy out of that. I mean, Bell, he, there are certain elements of his aggressiveness that you don't want to wean out. It's sort of like the stuff with Draymond, but not jumping on a pump fake on the perimeter is something that you can coach. I mean, go back, going back to the Cavs Raptors series. I think there, there were some good examples of that there. Then the final thing is just being a lot more judicious and probably not playing Nick Young very much. He isn't bringing as many positives as the negatives. I would even consider if they have to go with somebody, Quinn Cook, imperfect, but I mean, at least he can execute the scheme a little bit and he won't be attacked as zealously as Nick well, Young Well, I'm not sure about that. But, I think one-on-one you know, he might we be. Saw... I think they definitely are going to go after him. And I, and I don't know. I think if you had to decide between Nick Young and Quinn Cook solely as an isolation defender, I probably would want to have Nick Young out there. He's at least got like a little bit of size. Uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think... But it, I mean, transition yeah. and I mean, not that Cook is just a good transition defender, but Nick Young is the worst. He might be the worst yeah, transition defender And just defender as someone else who can like, you know, if you throw it to a guy in a closeout, he can actually like get into the lane and, and make a little bit of a play where I don't think Young can do that. And, and Cook won't take as many bad shots as Young either. Uh, so I, I, I would consider that... Um, yeah, but then that ties in with what I think is the bigger one. And we saw this a little bit in the second half, which is trying a little bit more of a stagger between Curry and Durant. Because it is it has been reported, Anthony Slater did a great job of this, that both those guys want to close the first and third quarters. And most of the time, the Warriors can get away with that. And more accurately, they can get away with not playing those guys for the first four to six minutes of the second and fourth quarters. Houston is too good. They're going to be playing at least one, often both of their best offensive players during those minutes. And those Warriors second unit lineups just don't really have a place to generate offense. So resolving that by sitting some guy like two minutes before, two minutes earlier, and then bringing that player back two minutes earlier than you would in the, in the later quarter, it wouldn't solve all those issues, but it would certainly help. And it would re- reduce the need for Nick Young to play in the first place. Yeah, that's a, a reasonable point. I mean, Livingston, it's tough for him. You know, if he's not going to have the ball in his hands, you he really presents some spacing challenges. And the Rockets don't have just like that one guy that he can go after. Maybe you could say Chris Paul, but Paul is strong enough that those guys can kind of cause Livingston problems a little bit. I think, you know, Sean is pretty good defensively, uh, which they need. But yeah, if Steph Curry can't be that spectacular, you know, I mean, I, I really struggled over this pick and I eventually went with the Warriors because I felt that Draymond Green and 
Andre Iguodala were playing at a higher level. You know, we haven't really seen much from Iguodala in this game, certainly not offensively. Uh, and also only 27 minutes for him. I, I think Kerr also, both he and Curry, is kind of just keeping that in the back pocket a little bit for later in the series if they need it. Um, now, going into Oracle, would you say that the Warriors are probably going to be favorites in both these games? And, and it's quite possible that they're up 3-1 and, and we're talking about the series being over after this? Yeah, I think so. But they're... There are weaknesses on sure. the team, and Houston was able to exploit those weaknesses. Uh, whether their role players play as well, I mean, Ariza, nineteen points. I mean, that's th- those those guys are really kind of the bellwethers in this series offensively for the Rockets. But I think it's really more about the Rockets' defense. I think if they can just avoid making mistakes and get back in transition, I, I think that like that's a, a big bellwether for the series too. Is just who's winning transition, and if the Warriors are doing it, and they run their pace is much higher at oracle so you know houston really is gonna have to watch out for that but you know the other thing about houston is james harden didn't play well chris paul was kind of only okay in this game although i don't think he's really gonna just blow up in this series uh but you know james harden can just go off and keep them in games if he just starts getting on fire from three but uh, although tom haverstroh did have a pretty interesting article that in game ones harden has been so much better than in the rest of the series in these playoffs now and he, his theory was that it's because of rest and that Harden is getting tired out. But Harden shouldn't be that tired after this game. Only played 33 minutes and now they get three days off. So, uh, I, I mean, I think that the way that Houston is going to have to win one of these two in Oracle, and they have to get one to make this a series still. I mean, they've done a little bit of the work now, but there's still more to go is that Harden is just going to have to go completely crazy for them in one of the two games. That and we'll see if the Warriors commit some of those Oracle turnovers. They had some of them in this where they just get a little bit overzealous and Houston has done a really nice job of playing the passing lanes using Golden State's reads against them. I thought that Paul in particular did a nice job there. And the Rockets are good enough that I think they'll be in the mix for at least one of these games. And then it just comes down to which team's going to execute. And one game, the Warriors out-executed the Rockets. One game, the yeah, Rockets out-executed the Warriors. Golden State winning game three in a blowout. And then they're just going to relax as they always seem to in game four. And I think that'll be the, the game that's going to decide the series. I mean, and that's always, I mean, I've talked about how a game six with the favorite down three, two is one of my favorite games. A game four with the favorite down two, one is another really interesting one, right? I mean, we saw Cleveland win in that situation in the first round uh, and they will, uh, They'll have a really interesting game on Saturday against the Celtics as well. Programming note, by the way, no episode tomorrow because there are no games. We're going to do a special Saturday night episode, though, so we can get that Cavs-Celtics game in uh, on Saturday night. Um, Anything else here we need to talk about? Any other adjustments? Anything that that come to mind here? No, not particularly. I think we went through it pretty thoroughly. Yeah, that was like 30 minutes. So, uh, yeah, good job. (laughs) Uh, Before we talk about the Bucs, though, I want to tell you about a charity that Danny and I are, are both involved in, and that is Team Rubicon, a charity that you've actually known about a lot more than I did. You were donating to them since 2012. Yeah, at, at different moments in my life, I've wanted to find a charity, and it is a very personal thing for me. I mean, I want to find something that has a, a message and that executes on that, and I'm so thrilled that I've not only found Team Rubicon back in 2012, but have, have stuck with them because they've been worth it. And so what Team Rubicon is trying to do is they're trying to build on the idea that military veterans come back with an amazing set of skills that can be at certain moments hard to utilize in every context, but are phenomenal in emergency response. And so what they do is they try to connect these veterans with first responders and medical professionals, and they do that in the situations where it is the highest leverage, and that is natural disasters. And I also like that it is nonpartisan. Natural disasters can be at any part of, of the country. They can affect people. And they've done amazing work recently with the hurricanes that hit Texas, Florida, and Puerto Rico. They've done and all that. And then they did amazing work back in Superstorm Sandy in the Northeast, in the, especially in the New York area then. So again, it, it, it can affect anybody. And they yeah, try to be there for everybody. you want to learn more everybody. about them, I mean, they, they operate worldwide team rubicon usa.org slash cap space either on that slash cap space url or you can text the word cap space to 87872 it's a five digit number 87872 or the website team rubicon usa.org slash cap space they do a great job of making sure that your money actually goes directly to operations on the ground over 80 percent and obviously every charity has to have some modicum of administrative personnel 
but 80% of your money, that's a pretty good number going to operations uh, on the ground. Once again, teamrubiconusa.org slash capspace or text capspace to the five-digit number 87872 to make a donation or just find out how you can help. Well, the Milwaukee Bucks have reached an agreement in principle with Mike Budenholzer, former coach of the Atlanta Hawks, to become their coach. There are reports that Budenholzer was at the top of the list for the Toronto Raptors as well. Woj reporting that while Bud met with them, no offer was made. That could just be that Bud said, hey, you know what, Like you're going to have to pay me $10 million a year. And they said, nah, no thanks. Uh, but the Milwaukee Bucks had a lot of pressure in this coaching search and I think that they clearly got the best candidate on the market, even though I do have some reservations about Bud. I think that he is in large part the guy who, at least based on his resume, can cure what ails this team. I agree. And a big part of that is because what the net sorry, what the Bucks need more than anything is to create and maintain systems on both offense and defense that maximize the personnel that they have and jason kidd i think the most cogent criticism of what he did defensively is that he had an idea of the way defense should work and he didn't change that approach despite the way the league was moving and also his personnel and budenholzer has been more malleable and i think that lends itself to a a much more cogent defensive scheme for the bucks who blitzed and trapped way too often considering their personnel they can switch more and Budenholzer hopefully will do a better job cultivating and developing perimeter players. I mean, Hawks University was the credit of, of that whole coaching staff, not just Budenholzer, but empowering players a little bit more and, you know, just hopefully using guys a little bit better would be a godsend for Milwaukee. That is the thing they need the most. Yeah, I think that while much has been written and talked about with their defensive system, and there might have been a worry from some Bucks watchers that because Bud did a lot of trapping in his career and that some of that trapping, while it worked well in the regular season, was pretty useless to, uh, against Cleveland in 2015 and 2016. You know, he had different personnel. He had Al Horford as the center. He went to more of a drop system in this last year when you know he didn't really have that type of mobility in the front court. I would be very interested to see whether he really tries to go smaller with this group uh but i think offensively just getting a more egalitarian attitude getting the ball moving from side to side i mean if you think about the way that the hawks have played for a while that they were able to get guys like damari carroll a guy who could actually attack off the dribble even though he wasn't the most skilled player because they would move the ball and get him a situation where he could catch the ball on the move and attack the celtics do that the jazz do a lot of that well, probably the number one person in the entire league, other than maybe LeBron James, that I would like to have attacking the rim with a head of steam off the catch is Giannis Antetokounmpo. So I, I think that they, if they're able to move the ball, those guys are going to have so much gravity. Uh, Chris Middleton's another guy who can shoot the ball. Bud does believe in having a, a lot of shooting on the floor, and he believes in playing with the pass. You know, Quinn Snyder actually worked with him uh, before he went to Utah. I think in terms of just bringing in a system, bringing in some coherence, I think he's definitely the best available guy. Now, as far as like a playoff game coach, I have not been particularly impressed with Budenholzer's work. Uh, we've talked about some of the warts that he's had before. And I think he you know, may not be the absolute easiest guy to get along with in the organization, especially as a guy who previously had had team president powers and just generally things that you'll hear here and there about him. But the Bucks are over a barrel here. They have to basically three years left for the contract of Giannis Antetokounmpo. And if they don't really get into something approximating contention in the next year or two, it's trade time for him. Or maybe, you know, they got to hope that they can retain him with that designated player veteran extension. But uh, that's not the situation where you want to be in, where the money is the big reason to stay. So I, I think uh, Bud was the best they could have done. And now, perhaps, uh, unless you have anything else on him, we should turn to uh, their offseason, which uh, is just as critical. It's extremely important, and having the coach lined up was always going to be a part of this, but now they can do it with the lens of what Budenholzer wants for their team. And some of the kind of foundational pieces that I think are worthwhile. Milwaukee, if you clear out their pending free agents and non-guarantees other than Malcolm Brogdon, who it's a lock that he's going to get his, his third-year non-guarantee picked up, if you so if you take all those, you know, Terry and Shabazz Muhammad and Jabari Parker off, they are about twenty one million under the luxury tax line. 
And I think it is a fair assumption to make that Milwaukee will not pay the luxury tax this year. So the question is kind of how do you want to use that $21 million? The most obvious way to do it would be with Jabari Parker. He is a restricted free agent. You can just either be proactive and try to come to an offer. You can match an offer sheet or they could using a sign and trade or the middle level exception and a few other little little wrinkles. They can try to use that money and allocate it in a different way. Yeah, and Parker is really their only significant free agent of note. They have a non-guarantee for Tyler Zeller next year. They've got Jason Terry. They've got Shabazz Muhammad. I mean, just Brandon Jennings. Not guys. Or actually, Jennings is on a non-guarantee for next year. So it really does come down to Parker. And with essentially about $18 million in room between them and the tax, they do have, of course, some superfluous salary out there. John Henson makes $10.5 million. Also, uh, we assume that they are going to get Mirza Toledovic off of their books, which could open up another $3.5 million or so in space uh, after they stretched him. So they'll be eligible to apply for that and hopefully, well, actually not hopefully, because I hope that Mirza can just resume his career, but likely will be able to, with uh, the lung issues that he's had, be able to exclude that salary. But you basically, when you include just having some maneuvering room under the tax, they also keep their draft pick, which is 17th this year. They got about $20 million to work with with Jabari Parker. and But that's not the only issue with Parker. The other issue is they have some plans for 2019. Tim Bontemps wrote about this earlier. Now, Chris Middleton, player option, Eric Bledsoe, those are two stalwarts for them. Obviously, this is not including those guys. But they could get about $30 million in room in the summer of 2019 if they don't take on any long-term money so given all of that what do you think about parker at this point what would your approach be to him if you're the milwaukee Bucks? i would be pursuing two different angles at once one would be i think of Giannis as a as a four i think that is his best defensive position and while jabari is a prodigious offensive talent the two of those guys together if you have to play them with a the center at least a significant portion of the time it can work but I think there might be another way to to allocate those resources. So I would be doing two things at once. One is trying to see what you could get in a sign-in trade. I floated the idea when we had Liam on of a favors for Jabari Parker double sign-in trade. I think that's the type of thing that could make sense for both sides. Maybe feel that out, see if there's anything. Sign-in trades have, in, under more recent CBAs, have been notoriously limited, but now we're getting closer to what the old paradigm with few teams under the under the cap, and so that could open it up a little bit. Then the other one would be, I feel that the market forces are not in Parker's favor. There are only about nine teams that could have salary cap space, and it's not even clear that as talented as Parker is, that he is the best restricted free agent power forward on the market. So a couple of those teams probably aren't going to spend. And there isn't really a clear cut troll offer that's really out there. Maybe the Bulls could do it if they really wanted to. It doesn't really seem like their MO, especially with Lowry Markin in there. So if you can't find that sort of a destination, I would play hardball with him and say, see what you can get. And be ready to be willing to walk away if it's an unreasonable number, but not expecting that to come. The problem with Parker is that this is a team that's ready to win right now. Maybe, maybe not next year, but definitely the year after that, right? And so Parker has a lot of upside. This is a team that in the long term, you know, we don't know if Middleton is still going to be a part of this team after next year. Bledsoe will be on the downside by then. He disappointed in the playoffs, although he's someone that I think Bud can get a lot more out of uh, with a, a space floor and, and a more more moving of the ball. Uh, another guy who I think is going to have a much better year next year under Bud, and hopefully Bud can get him playing at a higher level defensively. But Bledsoe's already 28, be 29 by the time he's a free agent next year. Parker just is too risky for this team at, at this point. And I mean, if you say... You know, Parker has a lot of upside still as a scorer. I mean, I think he can be an efficient 20-point-a-game scorer in this league. I would, I've actually, it's a little harder for me to kill him now because he's at least shown that it's possible for him to defend in stretches, which I wasn't even aware that he could do. You know, he did that in, you know, it wasn't very much. I'm not going to say he's going to be some great defensive player now, but you can at least allow for that possibility because he's done it uh, in stretches, limited stretches in that Celtic series. He looked you know, not great finishing around the rim, but pretty decent overall coming back from that ACL. But when you throw in all the variables of, you know, does he get to be just an absolutely dominating score? I think he can, but we'll see. Does he defend? And then of course, the biggest variable, does he stay healthy? And with all those variables, I think that 
you know, we often talk about, Danny, of free agency kind of being a crapshoot. And again, you know, this is Jabari Parker in 2019 versus 2019 cap space is kind of what we're trying to weigh here. I actually think that, you know, just having some space there, no matter who you get, especially with the additional certainty there, is just more useful. So, so that's one look way to look at it. The other way to look at it is, you know what? We got to go up against Philly and Boston and maybe LeBron if he's still in the East. Um, the only way that we can get there is if Jabari Parker really becomes that second star. And this is Milwaukee for us to say we're going to get another star, especially another star to come when Giannis only has one more year left on his contract. Or I guess it'll be two, but you know that's not not a very long time in today's day and age. Uh, and so to get another star when you don't know if Giannis is sticking around either, that that's unrealistic and you know yeah it's probably more likely than not that parker is a bad contract and but we got to just like swing for the fences with his upside um any reactions all that i know i went on for a long time there but there's just a, a lot of ways to view this i have a couple and i i think they relate so one of the offensive questions that i have with jabari on the bucks is just my vision of what jabari is as an offensive player involves him having the ball in his hands a lot and if you are on a team with Giannis, that gets challenging and the Bucks are probably going to play another a, a true point guard a as well. They have they have point guard talent. Ball, so. By the way, like he like the team's just like he doesn't really right. like yeah yeah. That's so exactly it, it what tough, I'm getting. At. I, you know, I think that Bud can do a better job of crafting a system. I mean, there is you do have to have yeah. He can, but yeah. but there are structural limitations. I mean, and, and so so that's one point. Second point: if you pay Parker, there is a meaningful chance that, and I'm not saying this is over fifty percent, but I'd say it's over 20 that a year into this whether it's another injury or just the revelation kind of like what happened with andrew wiggins the guy was drafted r shortly before jabari parker that you go oh crap this contract is maybe not untradeable but pretty damn close and if that happens then the bucks are completely screwed because they don't have the resources they still owe a first round pick to phoenix they're too good to have real first round picks none of their young guys look like they're going to be you know key players you know that, that could be sweeteners so that is a, a very significant risk as well is that you're you're putting all you know you, you talked about the idea of a crapshoot i think of it more like a roulette wheel and you're pouring all of it on one number and that number is jabari parker you know it could pay out but you don't really know i think that's a big risk and it's hard to to reconcile that for me with a guy who who isn't a perfect fit so if you can get him at a contract that is more palatable where the where the risk is solvable sure you can make that happen, and in restricted free agency, there is a possibility that, that that can transpire. And he can't force his way to a sign-and-trade. The Bucks have a lot of leverage in that sort of a circumstance if there happens to be a team that really likes him but just doesn't have the, the cap flexibility to make it work. And one other point I wanted to bring up that's not necessarily Jabari-related but is kind of financial upside. You talked about how they could have about $30 million in space in 2019 that yeah, actually undersells right. it a little bit on the kind of extreme because a lot of milwaukee's bad contracts expire in that 2019-20 season so john henson matthew Vadova in particular and also toledovich's money will probably be off the books because they stretched him with the expectation that they will be able to exclude him we don't know if that's going to be the case but it could be so if that gets closer to like 40 million not saying it necessarily leads to something, but maybe then you can throw two different $20 million contracts out there. Maybe you can keep Middleton and bring in somebody else that's pretty good. There are other ways to solve that if they can get up to 40 or even maybe $50 million. So uh, another, uh, I think my approach with Parker would be if I can get him on a deal that I think would be movable, that has some upside for me, I would do it, you know, or maybe a deal that just has significant non-guarantees. But I'm not talking about like the Joel Embiid, hey, if you tear your specific left ACL again or left knee, you know, I, I want more non-guarantees than that really. And a non-guarantee where I can cut him for performance as well, if need be. But, you know, I, if he's not going to be on a tradable contract, I think I would just let him go. I mean, maybe you play the dance and it goes all the way down to the wire. Now, that's not great for your chemistry and Jabari... You know, has made noises like he might be gone from there i think you know Giannis has said no he's gonna be here uh but the other thing too is if you look at this team's needs i think they need some help at center and we could and who knows how much help they need right if they get the thon maker from the last five games of that celtic series the last yeah the last five games of that celtic series then they don't need that much help at center but you know john henson to me you know they took off in that series basically when he went out with back spasms he's to me is not a playoff quality rotation player and tyler zeller is you know break glass in case of emergency backup center in the regular season who shouldn't see a minute uh in the playoffs and so 
What about oh, what well, about in a game seven? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there we go. You know, I think even if you're going to say that Maker is going to be a quality player for 25 minutes a game, which you know we thought that he would be that after his playoff performance last year, and I'm not I'm not quite ready to jump on that bandwagon again because he had five good games. But certainly, I mean, you would think the things he was doing defensively in that Celtics series would be things that were are repeatable, but. Nonetheless, he just was not good defensively in the regular season. So we can't count on him. And so getting another center is going to help this team a lot because Parker, when you've got Giannis and you've got Middleton and then Bledsoe is another shot creator on this team as well. Like he, he doesn't really add that much for you. And then he takes something away defensively. So, you know, now a year from now, if Middleton's not on the team and Bledsoe's not on the team and, you know, Parker is a second star for you, you might need him. But just for next year, you're much better off moving on from Parker and probably just signing best available center with the full mid-level uh now how long you want that contract to go uh, with their 2019 aspirations is another question but you know if they could get it Derek favors and just say hey Derek you know one year 8.4 million uh, on the mid-level and then you know you're you're going to start for us on a really good team you you can rebuild your value uh you know, th- that could certainly be something that'd be appealing if they can offer a starting position on a good team to whoever that's going to be so uh I mean, anyone else that sticks out to you if they move on from Jabari or, you know, I mean, they could also shed some salary potentially as well. But as you mentioned, they have limited assets available to do that right now. And the, those guys, both Delvado and Henson, both have two years left on their deals. Um, but anyone else that you think might be available for them that makes sense uh, as a big, uh, assuming that, that you agree with me that that's their biggest need right now. If Deadman opts out. That would be interesting. More of a stable five. I, I would like to see somebody. I mean, he did shoot some threes this year with the Hawks. Somebody that Budenholzer is familiar with, obviously. And so that would be nice to have that voice in the room to see whether you want want to have him around. I also would like to see, not necessarily as a five, but could be as a four, just a floor spacer. What they wanted from Toledovich, basically. Just somebody who can go in some of those lineups. Maybe somebody who can even fit in when it's yeah. them and Giannis. Old, so that could old be buddy, you know, Giannis uh, at center, Ilyasova that guy at center. Actually might be a decent, a decent sure. fit. Uh, obviously, Ilyasova. Ersan Ilyasova, Anthony Tolliver could be a decent fit. I would probably rather go with somebody like that than Channing Fry because Fry just defensively, I'm where I want the Bucks to go, he doesn't necessarily fit as well. So yeah, on the big side, that's more where I would go. If brought this up with Utah, if Bielitsa yeah, ends up getting his qualifying offer this team. This revoked, team has no for, passing. Yes, I think he could help a lot. So Bielitsa could be an option. And then I whether it's the other spot that it could be is a three, just depending on how they see Middleton. But shooting there could also be beneficial. The problem with looking for shooting at the small forward spot is there aren't many guys and almost everybody who can do that is expensive. So they could roll the dice on somebody like Joe Harris, I guess. But there aren't really any options at the three, which is why you end up looking at the four and the five. And yeah, and they've got Sterling Braun, who I think they'd like to look at developing uh a guy that I think would actually make a lot of sense for them, especially if he doesn't get a qualifying offer from the Bulls, is Noah Vonley. And the reason I say that is I think, especially in the East, although, you know, and Vonley actually is not a bad post defender either. He's pretty strong. Uh, I don't believe in Vonley's shooting, but, you know, maybe he can at least just stand out at the three-point line on offense. He's not a great offensive player. But as a switch guy, I think, you know, this is a team that really should be switching a ton. Bledsoe, Giannis, Middleton, Tony Snell. I mean, they've got a lot of guys on this team who should be able to switch. I think they've had a ton of success with that against Boston. I mean, their series against Boston, as time goes on, really looks more impressive by the day. Um, so, like, he would be someone I would target, just like a, a big who can move his feet a little bit and switch. I think Vonley, you know, could be available in their price range. Mike Scott, maybe, is just like a guy who can jack up some shots that might be useful. You mentioned Fry. I think you'd be fine, too. I mean, another guy who, as a potential reclamation project, Nerlens Noel, could be an interesting one here. Um, I don't know that he's really like a bud guy, but he might not be anyone's guy, <laughs> frankly, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to bring up Nerlens for almost every team. That's just the way it works with certain guys. And then the other one, I, when I thought you were going with the reclamation, though that's not the correct idea, is Milwaukee product Kevon Looney. I don't think it's a great fit, but they yeah, can consider that it. that is an interesting one. The The Warriors may be hard-pressed to bring him back. They're limited to, what, $2.1 million uh, uh, to pay him this year, although they would be able to offer him more after that, so maybe he would stick around. Um, let's see if anyone else comes to mind here. Yeah, favors we mentioned, it, of course. Uh, Bebe Noguera might be an interesting one. We'll see whether he gets a qualifying offer from the Raptors or not, but he he's an, another guy who can maybe get in the mix at center, block some shots for him. 
a little more offensive skill and finishing around the rim than Henton can provide. Yeah, and you mentioned Bielitsa too. He's another guy that I like. But if you're going to sign Bielitsa, I think you really have to be willing to play Giannis at center more um, because there's just not going to be that much space for him. But if you lose Parker, then, you know, as a, as a backup guy, a guy you can pass, Bielitsa would be great in Budenholzer's system. He's really been wasted in these pretty staid Minnesota offenses these last few years. One crazy thing that I want to float just because it's me is that as a rigid matter, because of the way the moratorium works, the Bucks could theoretically add in somebody via sign-and-trade that is not traded to the team that gets Jabari Parker. Theoretically, like, let's say, for whatever reason, that Jazz idea doesn't work. They could incorporate, like, let's say, uh, this. I'm not saying this is going to be available, but like Julius Randle, let's say. Theoretically, the Lakers, they got other things, but they said, hey, we can include that in the trade. You can structure it as long as it doesn't violate any of the league rules like the hard cap. You can actually do that, and we're getting closer to that spot. I just don't see it happening, but it's crazy, and I like it, so I'm going to bring it up. Yeah, it does get difficult when you're if you're signing a guy to a much larger contract than he had before as far as the salary match. Their other problem is they don't really have much salary that anyone's going to want to send back. You know, and then you mentioned, of course, that there's they're impacted as far as uh, that draft pick that they owe to Phoenix. So sending some additional enticements out might be difficult. So you know, I, I think, but the Parker drama is really going to dominate their summer, and then part and parcel with that too is how much money do they take on that goes beyond the summer of 2019 uh, that is going to be some of the big questions and then obviously you know they've got malcolm brogdon who's going to be restricted free agent in 2019 as well but I, you know i think they have enough on the wing and so it's just you know they go and shopping for a big man i think a big man can help them more than jabari parker would if it's the right guy i mean maybe that's part of it too is hey you know what let's just see what we can get with a full mid-level exception for a big if that's not there then maybe we do think about bringing back Parker. Um, I don't know. It's going to be tough. I think that's that. That's a negotiation that uh, if he gets such a massive offer, if he gets over twenty million a year and it's all guaranteed for for three or four years, you know, I think you got to let him go. I could still. Uh, the reports were that they offered him like three years, fifty four million. Would you offer that to him now to keep him out of restricted free agency? No. Yeah, that's tough. It's really tough. I mean, it's just, I and you've remarked on this that what killed them so much was just they've got two months of Jabari Parker being back from this injury again. But, and I think what really kills it though is just, you know, the guy's missed two out of the four, his four seasons in the league with a torn ACL. And you just, although he hasn't really had any other injuries besides that, it's still just when you throw in the fact that A, we don't know what his performance is going to be, and then B, the health as well, it's just, it's too risky for this team to throw all of their eggs into that basket for a player who has not really positively impacted winning for them and is also a health risk as of this point even though i think i am higher on him than you know probably a lot of bucks watchers are a couple other just housekeeping things i want to bring up you've mentioned the obligation to the suns i want to say what exactly what it is so since they are keeping the pick this year by virtue of that coin toss with miami they will send it to phoenix next year if it is four through 16 then if they retain it that year they will send it if it's 8 through 30 in 2020. So that's when I think it is most likely to convey is that 2020 year after 1920, the year that they could have the big overhaul. They also owe their 2019 second round pick. So this is next year's second. They actually have already, already traded this year's second as well, but they traded their 2019 second for Jason Kidd. So that is still out there. They're still facing a little bit of the consequence of that. And I'm going to be interested to see what their decision is on Brandon Jennings. It's a partial, it's a guarantee uh, date that I don't know, but it's 2.2 million that is on the line with him. And my instinct is they that they shouldn't. won't pick that up unless yeah, it's like a super the, late this, guarantee uh, date. They've had but, an interesting. This front office has had a couple of interesting signings with Shabazz Muhammad and Jennings that kind of makes you think like, oh, they think they need like more people to create shots on this team. But like you got Bledsoe, Delvadova, and Brogdon. Mm -hmm. Like you, you really need an yeah, I mean, you and really Giannis. need another. Uh, although I, I still maintain that Giannis's kind of point guard skills are overrated at this point. But I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think you also just you're better off just kind of taking a flyer, leaving leaving that space open. Like, do you want to waste two point two million below the tax when you know you could bring in someone from the G League or try to develop someone who's going to be a part of this team long term? I don't think paying Jennings that much really makes sense. Right. Yeah. The the only way that I would is if they are going to function as an over the cap team. 
and his guarantee date is late enough where you don't have to make a decision. Then you keep him around just on a lark, and then you know maybe he gets your fifteenth roster spot if he earns it, and then you you yeah. go from there. But also the we should also mention that the because they won that they actually lost that coin toss. Milwaukee has the seventeenth pick in this draft, and they cannot trade it right now due to Stepien issues, but they can trade it as soon as the pick is made, which means functionally they can come to an agreement that is not consummated until afterwards without violating the Stepien rule. Yeah, and we haven't mentioned the name DJ Wilson once, which is not a great sign for uh, the 17th overall pick uh, last year. Um, you know, we'll see what his summer league looks like, but he could very easily be a candidate, especially with their designs in 2019 free agency to just not have his third year option picked up. We'll see. Oh, now you're going to get Bucks fans talking shit to you like I no, got with Ellenson last year. I measured it a lot last more year. than you did. I wasn't like, yeah, they definitely should do that. I was like, ah, you know, he could be a candidate. That's not what I said. I, I said that if I had to make the decision at that moment, I would have declined the option. And I felt that way and I would have been right. Uh, who knows? He could bounce back next year. No, do you yeah, want to do, do Charlotte, do or Charlotte. do you, we, will, we, we have one more? <laughs> well, maybe it will. Maybe it will. Well, but. the the part because the the big the biggest thing to discuss with Charlotte is something that you and I have discussed at length in February, which is Kemba Walker. They should have traded him before the trade deadline. They did not trade him, and now Kemba Walker is on an expiring contract. And while there is technically the possibility that Charlotte could come to an agreement on an extension. And if they did, that would probably be a pretty team-friendly deal. There's Maybe not in duration, no but at least There's in terms of salary because of the flexibility. Exactly. So I don't think they can afford the risk of going through part or all of next season with the prospect of him leaving because they the Hornets would have absolutely no ability to replace him. Yeah, and the bring in James Borrego, probably not the most expensive coach in the world by any means, kind of augurs to me that they see the writing on the wall to some degree. I'm not sure whether, you know, that's going to happen in the offseason. I mean, I certainly think they need to listen in the offseason. But, you know, MJ had these comments. Uh, now now that he has Mitch Kupchak in and he can't just fire Mitch Kupchak, so maybe Mitch Kupchak is going to say, hey, we really need to trade this guy. But that doesn't seem very Kupchakian to me. I think Mitch uh, is definitely kind of more in the camp of, oh, let's make a run with these guys. Let's see. Uh, and you know, when they're scrounging for the eighth seed and realize that they have to trade Walker, then maybe they will, or maybe they just let him leave in free agency. Who knows? I mean, I, I think at this point though, I think the packages for him now that you only get one playoffs with him and who knows, maybe the packages with him for him really were terrible to begin with. You know, maybe you're just, the packages are so bad that like, you know, with the Hawks, with Horford and Millsap, when they were expiring contracts, that it's just like, Hey, let's just roll with this guy and, you know, try to win some more games this year and not piss off our fans by trading him. And, you know, if he leaves, he leaves. And, you know, is it really worth just getting, you know, a first round draft pick that's going to be number 20 next year to uh, hold on to Walker? You know, I can understand them maybe saying that if the packages just aren't there. Yeah, that's possible. A big complication for the Hornets that is a little bit different than last year, it's a little bit more extreme, is that as of right now, they are right at the luxury tax if you don't include unrestricted free agent Michael Carter-Williams, which we shouldn't, and Julian Stone, who has a non-guarantee. But if you include Travion Graham's hold, I would expect that Travion Graham will make more than his hold. And so the problem is that means they can't add to this team and they need to add to this team. Yeah, and they uh, will not be paying the luxury tax forever and ever, for eternity, forever, as long as Michael Jordan is the owner, you would imagine, and certainly there's no reason to pay the tax with a, a team that is this limited in upside. Really quick, I just want to go through the rosters and think of like what potential destinations there could be. If LeBron James returns, you know, certainly the Brooklyn pick for Walker might be something that, you know, that's the number eight pick now. Uh, might be something that Charlotte would be interested in. But reports have also indicated that Charlotte wants to get off of money, which I don't think... That maybe maybe the Cavs could send like a J.R. Smith for Batum or something like that. But that's if LeBron stays. And we by the time of the draft, we won't really know that. Maybe whomever Cleveland drafts, LeBron decides to stay and they can have that deal done for Walker. That might be one. Um, other than that, you know, Indiana, maybe. But I'm not sure how great a fit Walker is with Oladipo. Um, and Indiana certainly could take on some salary with Walker. Uh, that might be a better use of their cap space than whomever they might sign this year. So that might be one. The Knicks perpetually, but but now, really now with Porzingis Yeah, out, that's exactly no what I was going to say. They could just sign him in free agency in 2019. Yeah, and, and, sure. And Orlando, a couple like a couple of those other teams that need a point guard, but 
or I don't think they're close enough. So maybe they consider it. I don't think Orlando has any late firsts. Oh, they have that really. I think they have that really weird thing with OKC, but that's not enough for a trade. No. Phoenix, See, there, there's a bunch of extra many... draft picks. Maybe if they decide they really want to try and get better this year, but after they get the number one pick, they're probably still going to be more in development mode. So I, you know, I really don't see that obvious of a destination. And, uh, I mean, one that yeah. Yeah. Here, here's one that's sad. San Antonio, I don't think they have enough young assets unless they want to include DeJounte yeah, and Murray. Maybe it could be, you know, we'll see whether Danny Green opts in. You know, maybe, maybe it could be taking on some money. Batum seems like kind of a Spurs guy. Uh, you know, we'll see whether Leonard comes back or not. You know, so, I mean, maybe you don't have the assets, but maybe it's just taking on bad money at this point and, and a first round or two. But it just, that doesn't seem like a, a particularly Spurs move at all. But yeah, not a lot of destinations that seem that obvious there. You know, it seems like more likely and especially not a lot of destinations that are going to give up a ton i'm sure if the cavaliers put that number eight pick on the table they would have to really think about it but uh i don't know that that with the, the timing of everything with the Cavs, you know, i'm not sure that that's realistic either um okay well they can't make any moves you want to just end this now <laughs> uh what else do we have to say about that well, let's talk a little bit about Trey. Let's talk a little bit about Travion Graham. You and I both like him as a kind of lottery ticket type 3 and D player. He is a little bit older than most restricted free agents because he played four years of college. But there is just such scarcity at the at small forward that he could be worth a roll of the dice. They have early bird rights on him. But as I said, they're really close to the luxury tax. So I think he's a worthwhile gamble if you could get him for like, I don't know, four or five million a year something in that range. I would I would go for that as certain teams that just need an option there in the worst way. And while I think he can help Charlotte, you know, they have Mike, Michael K. Gilchrist that they're paying him for for another for this year and they as player option for next for 2019-20 and they just might not have the flexibility to make it happen. So, he could be a good little kind of kind of like what Troy Daniels was where it's just like try to try to see if there's something there. Yeah, and but he might be gettable with this team and their tax concerns, uh, and they certainly are not going to be interested in trading future first rounders because you know I think everyone agrees that they are headed for the toilet uh, these next few years. They also have the number eleven pick that is potentially valuable. We don't, I mean, not to trade, but to, to they can hopefully they can draft somebody that's useful. Didn't work out super well. I can't remember if Malik Monk was he was number eleven yeah, exactly 11. or whether he was right around there. Well, at least the Pistons don't have to deal with the pain of dra- the drafting at the same spot twice in a row. And but, but, I mean, Kennard wasn't bad. It's just that Donovan Mitchell was taken right after him. But we'll see if Charlotte can get a player. They are in this position like a few other teams where I think they can just go straight best player available and wherever that player fits in, so be it. And hopefully they get somebody that works. If not, not. And they have all their own picks after the season. They also have a couple extra future seconds from the Knicks. Going back to, I believe, I, I believe that's the Wancho Hernan Gomez yes. trade, and and so they could theoretically use that as a sweetener in something, but I think they'd rather just hold on to him and see if anything comes from it. Also interesting will be their pursuit of a backup point guard who can shoot better than thirty two percent from the field with uh, very limited resources this season. I'm not sure who that might be necessarily. You know, maybe like I mean, it's basically going to have to be someone for the minimum unless they find a way to cut salary. So and it's pretty bargain basement. You know, maybe Jameer Nelson or you know if he still wants to play or. Uh, Devin Harris or Jose Calderon or Mario Chalmers, like Tim Frazier. I mean, those are going to be type of Shane Larkin. I mean, that's who they're really going to be dealing with there with the the limited resources that they have. Uh, I mean, it's just... How dare you not mention Aaron Brooks and Ty Lawson? (laughs) Ty Lawson might be the best of that group. He actually looked pretty good uh, in the playoffs for Washington. Brandon Jennings could be another one as well if if the Bucs caught him. Shelvin Mack, uh, who almost certainly will be caught by Orlando not an inspiring group for a team that has just been really really struggling with Kemba Walker off the floor these last couple of years since the departure of Jeremy Lin anything else you want to say on these guys Frank Kaminsky is extension eligible yeah they don't do too well drafting like you know 9 through 11 although although, I mean I'm I'm not ready to give up on Monk yet you know I I think he he had moments in some of those tank fest games late so uh you know maybe maybe he can give them something as more of a backup one card but he seems like he's gonna have to play as kind of a two off the bench uh but maybe they just roll with him and try to bring in one other option but uh yeah i mean they 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 do project to be among the worst backup point guard situations in the nba next year uh, unless they can just kind of unearth a guy who's uh you know out of their g league team but or 
kind of an unheralded guy but they have not really had much success other than maybe graham developing that type of player in the last few years one more little thing i don't think anything will come from it michael kidd gilchrist is extension eligible as a technical matter because of when he signed his extension and he's just 24 years old that's pretty remarkable you think about just how his his arc has gone even though he hasn't even changed teams to have you know been a high draft pick and then pretty much you know not necessarily fallen out of the rotation because he still starts but to be where he is and only be 24 years old is pretty nuts i guess there's the possibility that maybe they could draft a point guard but it, you know yeah. maybe uh shy gilgis alexander could be someone who would be available around that time i think the projections are that both trey young and colin sexton will be gone by that point but probably they would have hope i think that one of those three guys would be there at 11 so maybe if the you know and if they believe obviously that he's the best player available uh you might take him so maybe that would they could go into the season with that as as their backup point guard solution and then you have just like a third point guard vet type available so maybe maybe there's some hope there but i mean other than that it's just you know i'm not sure where they go i mean they've got plenty of depth at most of these positions until they start getting killed by injuries again but uh you know maybe backup four is a little bit of an issue if you're not a believer in kaminsky which uh newsflash we're not so maybe they can try and find you know the next mike scott for the veterans there are going to be fours and fives that are available who are experienced that, that they can bring in i think so a backup four is probably another need backup four backup one so uh i mean they don't have many needs but that also means that it's more difficult for them to get better because you know they don't have a ton of needs. one other small point i want to make with them and this is true of charlotte more than any other team in their area that i can think of offhand if michael porter starts falling no i'm not i don't think he's going to fall to 11 but if he falls close enough where they can move up to that pick it is worth it to try to trade for a spot to get him because they are going to need a home run in the worst way possible. And as many shots as they can get at that, it's worth it as long as there's nothing catastrophic with his back if they get access to his medical. All right, on that note, we will depart. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget about uh, Team Rubicon if if you want to support the show, but uh, our sponsors maybe don't work for us. uh, Maybe a a donation or some support for them, teamrubiconusa.org slash capspace is that URL. And we will be back, going to take two days off, and we'll be back for the last episode of this week on Saturday night. Talk to you all then.